you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want you to turn to the book of Philippians. For those of you that are visiting with us, those of you that haven't been here with us in the last couple of weeks, you know that uh, I want to share that we're looking through the book of Philippians, and we've been going chapter by chapter and verse by verse, and this morning we're in chapter 2, and I had intended to do uh, verses 12 through 18, and when I was studying I couldn't get past verses 12 and 13, so I parked there. And so that's what we're going to read this morning, and then I want to share with you the problem with our tendencies. So if you would, one more time, just to make sure you're awake, stand with me as we honor the reading of the word of the Lord this morning. In the book of Philippians in chapter 2, in verse 13 and, uh, 12 and 13, we find the, the reading of the scripture here this morning. And Paul, writing to the Philippians, says, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Father, as we bow our heads before you once again, ask that you would take the reading of your word the hearing of your word, and now, Father, the preaching of your word to speak unto our hearts and into our lives to lead us, to guide us, and to help us to walk more strongly and faithfully with you day in, day out. Lord, I pray that you'd move me behind the cross and hide me out of the way and let not my words but your words speak unto your people today. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated this morning. Perhaps you know what a paradox is. A paradox can be defined as two seemingly contradictory statements where both happen to be true. Nowhere does this seem to cause so much confusion than with statements that show up in the Bible. In reading in John uh, in, in his commentary on Philippians, John MacArthur writes these interesting words. From the earliest days of the church, our relationship between the power of God and the responsibility of believers has been debated. In the Christian life, a matter of passive trust or active obedience. Is it all God's doing, all the believers doing, or is it a combination of both? The same question arises. He writes about salvation itself. Is it all God's doing or is there a requirement on man's part in the response to the command to believe the gospel? Scripture, it is clear that that salvation involves both God's sovereignty and human response. In John chapter 6 and verse 44, Jesus declared, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. But then again in Acts chapter 16 and verse 31 he writes, and, and we have been, or we have the command, believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. Clearly salvation is an invitation of God, but is always revealed itself in the faith and confession of man. Salvation is not by human works, yet it is always through the personal faith of every human. And as challenging as these issues are, none perhaps more challenging than the issue of sanctification, growing in your faith and walk with Christ. I mean, is it up to God 
to make you grow and to walk in your faith? Or is it up to each and every one of us that are sitting here to decide that we're going to grow and walk in our faith? Which is the answer? The answer is both. It's a paradox. That we are commanded by God and God does that growth, but yet we are commanded that we have a part to play. And Paul addresses this issue. In a nutshell, you can understand sanctification or spiritual growth this way. The growth of a believer requires your diligent effort. And it will never happen without it. But your diligent effort is never enough without the efforts that is enabled by the power of God. And it can't happen without that either. It is a two-edged sword our part and his part. This is exactly the paradox presented in these two verses that Paul gives to us today. As he was writing to the Philippians, as he begins to take the attitude and actions of Christ's humility, in which we looked at last week, and how that he suffered and died for us, how he put upon himself, the, the, went from the highest of heights to the lowest of low, so that he might be exalted back to the position of Christ. He tells us as Christians and as a church that we are to live in that relationship. We all, however, have certain tendencies. Tendencies that we display in our life, things that, that happen that, that, that are a part of our nature. We all have tendencies that get in the way of our humility and our obedience. So as we go through the text this morning, these two simple verses, I hope to put into words what Paul is kindly and affectionately sharing with the Philippian church as he is carefully pointing out the points that Paul wants to make, how effectively he provides the solution to our sanctification process as we grow in humility and in obedience. Look at verse 12. The first tendency that we have is found here in verse 12. I have a tendency, as many of you do, to stray. We all have a tendency to stray. Now look at verse 12 very quickly with me, and, and we want to just pick up the first part. Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Stop for there for a moment. Can you hear what Paul is graciously suggesting? You have obeyed my authority when I was there with you. Now, it is important, very important, that you carefully and even more diligently be obedient while I am away. Like the experienced mother or father <laughs> who knows that it's one thing for your children to obey while you're in the room. <laughs> it is absolutely another for them to obey when you're somewhere else. It is entirely different challenge when you are not there supervising. Paul implies here that these believers in Philippi, these grown-ups, have the same problem. 
They have the question, is anybody watching? Is anybody looking my way? Now, I heard about a state trooper who was sitting along the side of an interstate aiming his radar gun. It was resting on his arm while he was sitting there, had it pointing out to the road. And amazingly, every car that saw him slowed down to the proper speed. Later, he was interviewed by a reporter about why he was sitting along the side of the road with his radar gun. Actually, come to find out, it wasn't a radar gun at all. It was his wife's hairdryer. He had forgotten his radar gun at the office that morning, so he stopped by the house and decided to pick up his wife's hair dryer and simply was pointed out the window as cars were passing by and they were obediently slowing down. Isn't it amazing how that we are responsive to that which we know when someone is watching? Now, you might be thinking, there's just something wrong with that. Kevin, you ought not to be doing that. (laughs) But listen, really, it's a good thing. It happens to be what one author called the pressure of presence. And it's a good thing. The pressure of authoritative presence that has a way of keeping you and I in line or reminding us when we haven't. I read this story. An author who was retelling an account that she had one morning in a hurry taking her daughter to school. She had uh, pulled up to an intersection where it was a red light at an intersection where there was obviously a sign that said, no turn on red. Without even thinking, she clicked a signal light and went on. And immediately as she went around the corner, she said, out loud, "Uh uh-oh, I just turned when I wasn't supposed to. And from the back seat, she said, her daughter said, don't worry, Mommy, the police officer behind us did the same thing. (laughs) She was about to get a gentle reminder. In other words, what Paul is saying to us The words that Paul is using here is he is saying to the Philippians, you have been obedient in my presence. Now I want you to obey even more when the pressure of my presence isn't there in Philippi. The word Paul used for obedience here is a compound word that is to do with the act of listening. In fact, the word used here for someone answering the door. When we hear that knock on the door, what do we do? We immediately realize that someone is at the door and we need to go see who it is. Or if you're like me and you're lazy, you just say, come on in. We'll figure out who it is when they get in the door. I don't want to get up. Okay? In other words, Paul's saying you've always been careful to listen to the truths that I have been speaking Make sure that you obey them even if I am not there whispering in your ear. He's not patronizing them. He's simply pointing out something that happens to all of us when it comes to knowing and and obeying truth. 
We are oftentimes better at obeying truth when we know someone is watching than we are when we think no one is paying attention. And unlike little children or misbehaving motorists, we, ev- we are evident, uh, our evidence of our spiritual growth is how we behave when no one is looking. Or to put it another way, do we behave even though we can get away with misbehaving? That's a good question. Did you know that a growing reputation is based upon how we act when people are watching? Growing in sanctification, however, is how we act when no one is watching. As you and I mature in our sanctification of Christ, meaning growing in our relationship with Him, the pressure of presence moves from an external authority, like a parent or a police officer, to an internal authority where the Bible tells us that we have the Spirit of the living God with us wherever we go. He is always, always watching. When we come to that understanding to know that God is always, always paying attention to what we're doing, and we live in response to Him, knowing that He is with us wherever it is that we find ourselves, and we'll find ourselves obedient, then we are growing in Christ. In a very real sense, growing in our sanctification means we are coming to an understanding that we are submitting to the pressure of the presence of God who walks with us through life. Always we should be remembering when no one else is watching, God is always watching. And that's a good thing because you and I have a tendency to stray. The second tendency that is very common to most of us is we have a tendency to stall. Now, if you look at the latter part of verse um, 12, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. By the way, I want you to make sure you hear me. When, when I'm reading Paul's words, Paul is writing to Christians. He isn't defining how that one gets saved. He isn't referring to the, the de- how we demonstrate our salvation. Did you notice that Paul does not say here, work for your salvation or work up your salvation? or even work towards your salvation. No, he is very clear to say, work out your salvation. In other words, what he is saying, once you have received the salvation of God, start living it out in your life. Every one of us ought to be living for Christ every day. We ought to be living it out. Now what Paul is encouraging us is he's saying, don't stall. Don't get started and then stop. How many of us have a tendency of starting a project but never finishing it? Don't raise your hand, and if you get elbowed by your wife, uh, I'm sorry, okay? All right? 
I'm guilty of that. There, there are some pieces of molding that are still yet to be put up from the last time I painted, and now my wife has me preparing to paint again. So maybe the molding will get put up this time. All right? We have a tendency of stalling in the midst of a project. Something else catches our attention. Something else causes us to go somewhere else and not finish the task. Now, Paul wants us to to understand that he is affectionately saying, as growing in Christ is going to require us to daily work out. So the question for all of us is, are you willing to work out? How many of you have an exercise plan? Don't raise your hand. (laughs) All right. Are you willing to work at it? Are you willing to, to put in the energy? God is, in fact, his willingness is already at work within you. Because listen to what the Apostle Paul says here. Being confident of this very thing in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 6, he says, being confident of this very thing that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. God has already started a good work in you. And he says, listen, I'm not going to stall. I'm going to keep working in you and with you so that you are as a believer continually growing until I return. Paul specifically tells the growing believer to work out their salvation. Now, keep in mind that throughout the New Testament, there are what we call three dimensions of salvation. Now, some of you are going to go, this is a head scratcher, but hang in there. I I hope to make it clear. All right. Three dimensions of salvation. First, the past dimension. The past dimension for every believer is that of justification or our redemption, the inclusion into the family of God by faith in Christ alone. That is in past tense and forever settled and secured. In other words, I was lost and I came to Christ and because he had finished the work of Calvary, because his blood cleanses me from all of my sins, because of the work that he finished over 2,000 years ago, I have been bought and paid for with a price. And when I came to him... I am saved, not because I am doing anything for my salvation, but because of what he has already done for me in my salvation. So that's the past dimension. Then there is a future dimension. John writes it like this, after death, or after our death, or perhaps sooner by means of the rapture of the church, you and I will see the Lord Jesus face to face and become like him in a perfected, glorified body. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2, John says to us that one day we're going to see him face to face. Did you catch what he said? One day. It's not that any of us have seen Jesus face to face. But one day we're going to lay down this old tabernacle, this flesh, and one day we're going to be in the presence of God. The scripture says that, that where he is, there I shall be also. One day. That's the future. It's not right now, but it's someday. And I don't know about you, but I've been saying, come Lord Jesus, come. I'm ready for the rapture. It can come anytime. You don't have to wait until I die. It's okay. I'm ready to go now. My bags are packed. I'm ready to go. That's the future dimension. Then the third dimension is where you are today. 
the present dimension. Now, the time between our past salvation at that point of our new birth and our future salvation, that glorified eternal state where we will be in the presence of God in a glorified form, there is the present salvation. We can call this present dimension of salvation sanctification. It's the part of our life where we're living out every day how to be his child. This is the process of spiritual growth Paul is referring to here in Philippians 2.12. Now, if you're scratching your head and you're not sure, listen, I'm going to go over it one more time. on the cross. Our future salvation will save us forever from the presence of sin. In other words, when we get there in heaven, there is no sin. We're going to be saved from sin. Our present salvation is saying to us that it is saving us from the power of sin. One temptation at a time where we are able to say no to that temptation. And that's an ongoing process of both ups and downs, forwards and backwards, mountaintops and valleys, um, home runs and strikeouts along the way, times when we succeed and times when we fail. But we're reminded that scripture teaches us, Paul tells us that there is no temptation that is given unto us and wherein God has not given us a way out, a way forward. Have I died? No, I'm on. I'm good. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So God has given us a way forward. Our present salvation is saying us, saving us from the power of sin. This present salvation is the process of what we call sanctification. Where the believer is being challenged to demonstrate his growth daily in Christ. Having been redeemed in the past and on our way to glory, we are saying, Lord, make me more like you today and less like me. Therefore, as we do, Paul compels them to work so much the more. In other words... Not slowing down, don't stall, don't stop. And what is Paul's goal here? Paul has in mind. Here he says, within this application of the context, Paul is saying and exhorting us to demonstrate in humility the humility of Christ in which we obey him every day. Don't stop. He urges us on. Don't stop halfway. No one ever wins the race if they stop halfway. You've got to cross the finish line. It doesn't matter if you come in last or in the first place. You don't win if you don't finish. Every one of us must finish the race. 
So don't stop. The goal is the, adi- is, is the attitude of humility in Christ. The finish line is the completion of the work in which he has begun in us that will take us through to our death or the rapture of the church. Again, Paul is graciously encouraging the Philippian believers as he does us as well. He knows that finishing is something that is a lot harder than getting started. Perhaps like no other time in the completion of any other project is the temptation to quit is never stronger than when you've worked so hard and yet you find that you're only halfway there. There is no more likely time to throw in the towel or to simply stall after you've accomplished something for the Lord, made a few steps forward, but then find yourself saying, what's the point? Perhaps this is why Paul is literally commanding us to continue to keep it up. Don't stop now. The finish line is before you. You know, here's the problem. All too often, though, when you and I make a few strides forward, we have a tendency of listening to our little voice in our head that says... (laughs) Boy, you're something special. Have you looked at the rest of those folks? They haven't even gotten off the blocks yet. And look at you. You're rounding the first corner already. You're such a great Christian. I wish that everybody was as good as me. We have a tendency of listening to that little voice in our head that kind of makes us think that we're something that we're not. Or we listen to Satan who says to us, Boy, everybody else should have what you have. I mean, how rare are you in the body of Christ? There ain't a lot of Christians nearly as dedicated as you. Aren't you something special? With that tendency in mind, Paul says to us, be careful because we have a last tendency that we need to be very careful of. And he says we have a tendency to strut. Look at the latter part of verse 12. With fear and trembling... So Paul adds here a perspective that will help us from getting too caught up with our own progress in sanctification. Of working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Now he didn't write, work out your salvation with gloating and self-congratulations, but rather with fear and trembling. Now this is an Old Testament terminology that refers to um, how that we are to look at God as our audience. Fear and trembling is another way of saying that we look at him in awe and in deep respect for the glory and holy perfection of God. Paul is effectively writing here, work out your salvation, that the same thing is saying in awe and respect with great humility before God, recognize that it is not you, but it is him. He has the revelation realization of how that we are nothing apart from him. We're reminded that he is the vine and we are the branches. Apart from him, we can do nothing. But together with him, we can bear much fruit. He's far more capable 
of doing great things in us than we can ever imagine. And so, he says, with trembling or anxiousness to live rightly before God, work out your salvation with him. Work out your salvation with humble respect and awe for the one who is living in and through you. And when we do that, we won't strut our stuff and say, look at me, but we'll say, look at him. Which leads us to the last one I want you to see today, found in verse 13. We have a tendency to steal. Now you say, wait a minute, what are you talking about? I'm no robber. I'm no thief. Many times we are. In other words, we have a tendency to take credit for things that we have accomplished that we really haven't accomplished on our own. Paul reminds us here that the credit and the glory must never be stolen or claimed by any of us. Why? Look at what he says in verse 13. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. He reminds us that it is God who is at work in you. It is God who is leading you. It is God who is doing for you. Pride, that which is nothing more than stealing the credit from God, has already nibbling away at the church in Philippi. Paul is attempting to cut it out by showing the example of humility in Christ and how that we are to live for him in humble humility. Paul reminds them here, it is God who is at work in you both to will and to do his pleasure. But what does that mean? Well, that's one of those paradoxes. We're commanded to work outwardly, to go out and to do. We're commanded to do what we're to do, but we are then told that what we do outwardly is simply a result of what God is already doing inwardly. In other words, the reason that you're doing what you're doing is because God has already done in you what he's wanted you to do to do for him. Isn't it amazing when Jesus was in the garden and he was praying, Father, if there's any other way that we can save humanity, if it is possible that this cup pass from me, let it be so. But the very next thing that Jesus says is the evidence of the fact that the God, the Father, had been working in and through him. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. In other words, Father, I already know the answer to that, and I already know that it's your will, and I already know that you've been working in me to do that which is before me. But again, I need to know that it's not me, but it's you. And so it is with you and I, which is the context of humility and Paul's way of reminding us that God alone deserves the credit because ultimately he is the one at work in us, both to will or to want, and to do or to act, I, I wonder how humbling is that? That everything that we do, we don't do because we are doing it, but because he is doing it through us. When Paul was asked, how do you accomplish that? The answer he gives, God did it through me. How did you come up with the idea? God impressed it upon my heart. Where did you get the wonderful desire from? God gave it to me. Come on, isn't that just religious 
jargon that you're supposed to say on a Sunday morning? I mean, do you really believe that? Paul would say, oh, yes, I do. And here's what he said. Listen to why he believes that. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Or in Philippians chapter 4 verse 13, when he said this, I can do all things simply because Christ strengthens me. You see, Paul understood, and that's why Paul could say, I believe. It happens to be some of the most telling evidence of our growth of spiritual sanctification. Anything good that I desire was a desire that he put in me. Anything good that I did was something that he did through me. Ultimately, it is God who is at work. And I am simply acting in humble obedience to his work. Now, I love the word that Paul uses here for the word work. For it clearly makes this point. It's a different word than when he used earlier in verse 12 to work out our salvation. Here in this phrase, it is God who is at work. The word changes to um, energio, which means where we get our word energy from. In other words, which again creates the wonderful paradox, God, the infinite worker, empowers us, gives us the energy to do his work. And as one author put it, when our work is empowered by his work, our work becomes the expression of his work. But herein lies the tension. Herein lies the tendency. God isn't going to make you open your Bible and study it. God isn't going to kick you out of bed on a Sunday morning and tell you to come to Sunday school. His work in us and for us does not eliminate our responsibility to work for Him. And yet, when we do work, it is simply through his energizing strength that we do what is right. That which doesn't make obedience easy, but it does make obedience possible. And when we desire to act, we understand that it is first and foremost the desire that he has placed in us to be obedient. And when we accomplish it, when we are obedient and we do those good things, it is for his good pleasure and for his ultimate glory that we live. And as a result, we steal none of the glory for ourselves, but humbly thank him for the privilege of laboring for him and by his means. Have you ever wondered why that the Bible says that when we stand before the Lord at the Bema seat, that we have received the crowns and, and all of those wonderful rewards for the things that we do, but yet there we find that the Bible says to us that we're going to bow a knee before the Lord 
And we're going to take them off and we're going to offer them back to Jesus. You ever wonder why we do that? Because that's the ultimate reality. That we realize that everything that I did for you, Jesus, I did because you did it through me. I didn't do a thing without you. And therefore, if anybody is worthy of reward, it is not I, but it is you. And we, we will bow and we will present to our Savior those crowns of glory. So let me just wrap it up with this. This is the truth about our tendencies. We all have a tendency to stray. We need to remember that it is easy for us to do things our way when nobody is watching, but we need to be reminded that God is always watching. We need to remember that we have a tendency to stall. We get started as a Christian and, and we think we're going places and then life kicks us in the teeth and what do we say? I'm just not going any further. Listen, if we don't finish the cross, or cross the finish line, we have not run the race. It's no time to throw in the towel. It is time to put the pedal to the metal. It is time for us to continue the race until the end. We have a tendency to strut. So stay fearfully, respectfully in the presence and the awesomeness of God's great power. And you'll never take glory for yourself, but he will always get the glory. We have a tendency to steal. So stay grateful that he has chosen to work in and through you so that one day you will receive a crown of glory that you can present back to him and say, Father, it was never me. It was always Jesus. I don't want to be before him at that beam of seat and not have something to present to my Lord for his faithfulness to me, even when I have been unfaithful. My prayer for you is, my friends, be faithful. Don't give in to the tendencies of this world. But remember, Jesus is coming. And when he does, we want to be ready to honor him with everything in our lives. Father, thank you for the opportunity today to be able to stand before you and to remind folks how that we're to work out our salvation every day with fear and trembling so that we will stand before you and say, Lord, it's not I, but it's you. Help us, O oh Lord, to leave this place today recognizing, O oh God, the great work before us and the great reward that awaits us. Help us to work out our salvation now so that when we get to that future, it will be glorious. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.